Welcome to the Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and well, a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today I'm sitting on the west side of Los Angeles, in Venice, with Sean O'Connor, principal of Sean O'Connor Lighting. Sean, thanks for giving me a tour around this beautifully designed office that allegedly used to be a gas station back in the day. Welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about where we're sitting and how this place came to be. Thanks so much, Sam. Good to be here. We are sitting in our recently-ish completed office space. This used to be a gas station in the 40s. And then later on, as that became, I don't know what it became, but it's no longer a gas station. It was a break and tire shop when we bought the building. That's two buildings and protected by a courtyard. And it's pretty cool. It's a great place to be. Sit outside, enjoy the weather. Definitely that sort of California thing. It definitely has a California vibe. I've got to tell everybody, the coolest thing that I've noticed so far since being here is there isn't painted lines in the parking lot. It's strips of wood in the concrete. Who came up with that idea? Some lighting guy. (laughs) Some lighting guy. So there's more to lighting design here. The courtyard's nice. Two buildings are nice. But let's talk about Sean. Who is Sean and how did you get your start in lighting? Honestly, I think for me, I grew up in a small Southern California town. I was interested in the beach and I was interested in art. And my grandmother was an amazing painter. My father was an aerospace engineer, designer. So I was sort of pursuing an art education. And then while doing that, I sort of found my way into a semester in the theater and saw the transformation of light in space on people, on things, in mood and emotion. And that was interesting, but I didn't really realize that was the moment. I don't know that it really was. And then later on, I decided to do architecture in school. I kept coming back to doing all these sort of installation pieces in the first year conceptual part of school. And they all revolved around light and shadow and moving things and seeing light and shadow change. And then fast forward a little bit further, I professionally started working and found my way into a position at Barney's New York, which is a retailer, now defunct, sadly highly influential retailer, fashion. And there we were building stores and saw all the stores come to life with an incredible architect, an incredible lighting designer, and just sort of fell in love with the technical and creative aspects of it. And here I am. The technical and the creative, the art and the science of lighting, it's something so many people that are enthusiastic about lighting talk about. There's one other thing that I know you're super passionate about, and it has to do with where you grew up. And that big blue body of water Ah. just to the west of it. Yes. It's a big part of my life. It was a huge part of my life as a kid. I was a competitive surfer. I had dreams. I had hopes. Not fulfilled in the end. The surfing is a huge part of my life. Again, today I did take a 20-year hiatus with surfing and came back to it about seven years ago, eight years ago maybe. What do you think was so fun about surfing when you first got started as a little kid with it? Well, I think it first starts with just sort of being at the beach and the enjoy being at the beach and the water and all those sort of things. And I think once you're out in the water by yourself in your own cone of silence, as it were, so you have a spiritual component to the sort of waiting. You know, waves don't just keep coming. You do sit a lot and you wait and you think and you stare into the horizon and nature and see all these colors and the light change from early morning to late afternoon, depending on when you surf. As a kid, if you surf all day, you see all of it. I think the activity of surfing, the actual art of riding a wave or feeling being pushed by nature, something that's really temporal, it only happens for a few seconds. It's not minutes. It's not like snowboarding or skiing or things. 
each wave is unique. Every experience is different. In life, when there's certain moments, when you get excited, when maybe the adrenaline kicks in, there's dopamine too, which I'm not well-versed to speak on as a lighting enthusiast, but there's a lot of chemistry in our bodies, a lot of things that fire to make us excited, to get us going. Hmm. Do you feel like you get the same feeling when you walk into a space that you get to see your design that's complete in as you did when you were surfing and being pushed along as a kid with that power of the water? It depends on the project, I think. It really comes down to different types of projects spark different emotions, so different kinds of space. So a workplace project may be very satisfying visually, but it may not draw the same kind of emotional reactions that a hospitality project or a branded environment or even a home might bring about. When you think about the different types of projects, you peel back the onion, you peel back the layers of what goes into it. I'm curious to get Sean's take on what do lighting and surfing have in common? That's an amazing question. I actually think there's probably more similarities than one might think in as much as every wave is different and a different opportunity, just like every project is different and a different opportunity. You have to think on your feet literally, while surfing and very quickly because you have to react to whatever is happening with the wave or the people around you. So you're always moving quickly, making decisions instantly. And I think as a lighting consultant and lighting design and working with other people who are in charge of the entire vision of the project, you're sort of at their service in a similar way. So you're always thinking and changing position and making suggestions all in the same sort of way that you know different turns and maneuvers on a wave might be doing the same thing. So there is that rapid fire thing for all those different circumstances and situations. When you look at the rapid fire situation, I think I can relate to a little bit on the lighting side of being a design shred and having to learn everything all at once and respond and think and act quickly on your feet. Tell me a little bit more about when you're surfing. I've got to think you've got to stay balanced on the board, but past that, what else is there? Timing is interesting. I'm not sure I know how to equate the timing thing directly to a charrette. Maybe it's when you say what you say or draw what you draw for that particular audience. But I think surfing, it's all about timing and when you turn and how you turn and where you are on the wave and what the opportunities are that are coming that might be a different kind of maneuver, a turn, cut back, tube riding, different sort of things. You're always looking at the wave for that opportunity in the same way that when you're looking at a building, you're looking for those design opportunities. What are the features that you want to highlight? What are the things you want to sort of lead your eye away from? So you're sort of curating the space for the viewer. So you're talking about the different things you want to see, the textures, materials, colors, spaces, placemaking, how to define all those things. It's sort of the same way. I think when you're doing a design, the design comes together pretty quickly, space by space anyway, maybe not the whole project. If you're able to look at something and visualize it relatively quickly, it's that sort of old 10% inspiration, 90% perspiration thing, right? The ideas come quickly. Then it's about convincing someone that that's the right idea. And then once they agree, if they agree, then it's about producing that idea and writing that wave all the way to the end, so to speak. When you say, you know, the idea comes together quickly, lighting designers have the ability to create an amazing space and enhance the architecture, or maybe influence the architecture with light. But all too often, it's not like over the 10,000 hours of the project, you get 10,000 hours of commentary. You may get like one hour. What's it like to be on the hot seat and to take a line out of dodgeball, (laughs) duck, dip, and dodge the design charrette 
real time in the 60 minutes you have, like you're chasing a wave. So there's the waiting portion, right? When you're waiting for the wave, that's listening to the design team talk about their vision and what they're sharing with you. And then there's the critical few seconds, minutes in this case, where you will get to share your ideas and react, respond to the things that they've described to you with your vision for the lighting design. This is very similar that you're sort of waiting and listening and you're watching the ocean. They're the, sort of the same thing. So you're watching the ocean, looking for that wave. You're listening to the architect or the interior designer tell their story, their vision for the project, the narrative. And then you have to respond and support that design vision with light. As you're listening and responding, that dynamic environment is always changing. When you're in the ocean, there's no two waves that are the same. There's no two projects that are the same. There's no two buildings that are the same. Yeah, I think you're given something and then you propose something that either sticks and you move on to the next thing or it doesn't stick and then you have to come up with the next idea and you sit there and you doodle and you sketch and you describe things to people. Those are sort of those moment-by-moment reactions that you're making when you're surfing just within a different way here with design. And it could be lighting, it could be something else. I just think that lighting is the easy one because that's what I do. You mentioned having to react and being reactionary. In surfing, you're obviously reacting to the right wave to try and get up on it. What else do you have to be reactionary to when you're in the water? Well, there's other things in the water. So there's other surfers in the water. It could be swimmers. It could be seals. It could be other sea life of interest. So there's things... sharks in the water. Yeah, there are yeah. sharks in the water. Yeah. It happens. Luckily, I've never had a bad run in with a shark. I've had some scary moments, but never a bad, you know, I have all 10 fingers, all 10 toes. So I'm happy to report that. I think coming across different obstacles in the water is very much like the different consultants on a project. You're sort of ducking and jiving and ultimately trying to have a good outcome. I think the big difference between surfing and lighting is if you catch a bad wave, you can just pull out and be done with it. Mm -hmm. You get a bad project or a challenging client or something, you can't just bail as much as you might want to. As much as you might want to, you can't just bail. There's something there in the sense that when you have a project, you really have to embody it. You have to ride the wave. Once you pick it, once you become a part of it, it's important that you do the best you can. And that often leads to making sure you're doing the right thing and articulating the process in the way you want so that the end result is delivered in the way that you want it to be. Talk to me a little bit more about what it's like to achieve success on any project, on any team, on any wave you catch, and how you get there. It's interesting. I want to zoom in on one thing you said, which is the end result. Basically, in my current thinking anyway, is that the end result is always the most important thing. Everything we do is in service of the end result. It's not necessarily about making the deadline on Monday or Tuesday, but really what shows up on the job site, how it gets installed, how it performs how it's focused, how it's programmed, all those sort of things. So the end result, I think, has to always be in your mind at every step of the way. The end result has to be on your mind every step of the way. I want to dive into that a little bit more. But first, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll really talk about, well, the details of the design and how you can envision how you're going to work that project all the way from beginning to end. Sound good? Sounds good. Hey, real quick. 
This podcast is brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. They make short, informative two-minute videos and bring you things like this podcast. Check them out. That's lytei.com. And welcome back. Over the break, Sean and I were talking just a little bit more about that design process, achieving success and getting to that end result. Sean, let's dive right in. Talk to me a little bit more about what it's like to be intentional from the beginning. You pick a wave because you know you might have an opportunity to succeed on it. You mentioned waves are fast and projects are slow. What does that mean and and how do you ride the wave of design? It's a funny thing. I think waves obviously have less consequence than a design project does. So they are quick. Like I said, they're a matter of seconds before it's all over. You know, it's really about personal joy and fulfillment. And obviously a project is a long-term commitment. So if it's a fast project, it's eight months. It's a retail store or something. If it's an architectural project, it's five, seven years. Five to seven years. Sure. Let's break down five to seven years and why an architectural project can be that long. What kind of project takes five years to design? We don't design it the whole time. Oh, okay. So you design it for some of the time and they built it for a long time. And then we come back at the end. You You babysit it the whole way through, right? There's a lot of time that might go by where you're not involved when the building's coming out of the ground. Maybe it's 90 stories tall or something, right? So there's a lot of work to do that doesn't really involve you until they start fitting out some of the lower floors as the rest of the building's going up. You know, the CA process, the construction administration process is fairly limited over the course of, for lighting designers anyway, for the duration of that construction project. Okay, I got you. Sorry, I was just trying to understand in my mind how you draw lights on plants for seven years. Please no. Yeah, that was a lapse in judgment on my part. I'll I'll let you take us down the continued journey of design and that end result. So back to that idea of quick expression of surfing versus the longer term lifelong thing that a project might be. And when I say lifelong, that's to say that hopefully we're building buildings that are going to last 30 or 40 or 50 years or longer, hopefully, but who knows? Everything sort of seems to change, but that commitment has to be there. Starting with that intentionality really sort of sets the course for the entire project. You never really want to go about doing things that you don't really mean. You don't want to do those placeholders and things that may or may not get picked up or corrected down the road. So starting off with intention, here I like to start with sketching and ideas that come out very quickly that way. It's not a computer. You're not limited by this idea of how good the drawing is. You're just trying to get ideas on paper. And then in doing that, these aren't just lighting plans we're talking about. We're talking about drawing in section and on elevations and thinking about surfaces that are being illuminated or not. So I think it really comes down to that intentionality, right? It's not just about dots and lines. We sort of joke about dots and lines as what people are looking at at the end result. That's the deliverable is how you build something. Those are the drawings that we use. But obviously the thought process all starts in the beginning. And if you don't have the ideas, the ideation process determined early on, sketching all the way through details and things to understand what may be possible, then I think if you don't do that right away, you're always coming back and chasing those things all through the project. And when you talk about chasing those things all the way through the project, those things are the, the intent, right? The initial concept. For you, how does that initial concept appear? 
Well, I think the initial concept is inspired by what we're shown by the architect, the interior designer, the design team, the clients, needs, wants, desires. And then we sort of riff on that. So you might get a bunch of images that support the idea of the project, mood boards, as it were. So knowing what your goals are from that, and then looking at how things are designed and what the selections are in a project to determine how to achieve that same sort of idea or how to improve those ideas as opposed to cutting and pasting from another project or something, but really trying to develop something in response to that. And we like to do that collaboratively. We like to sit in groups and talk about things and share ideas and things that we've all seen or experienced, memories of special spaces or special things or special treatments, if it's really that specific, to bring those things into fruition. And then that goes back into the sketching and details that make it so that not every light fixture is an expression of something that might be more of an architectural form that's expressed, not necessarily things like hardware. Mm-hmm. And then once you start getting into all the deliverables, if you don't have that intention in those deliverables, you're always going to be going back to the well for that intent later on. It happens sometimes. Yeah. It's, it's a reality. I want to dive into that intent just a little bit more. So you have something that you're shown. You have a set of needs, wants from the client. You have the physical structure, the architect's design, interiors are giving you maybe finishes, art furniture, carpet, things that are going in the space that may be opportunities to deliver light throughout the space. That's the intent. But talk to me a little bit more about why a strong intent, an intent with purpose is important so that you don't have to go back to the well and you can focus on what you mentioned. It's just at the end, there's lines and dots on a plan. Right. The intention is your roadmap. So if you get in the car and you don't know where you're going, you're just going to drive and hopefully find something or a destination, whatever that may be. So you have to know where you're going. And I think that's just the most important thing. It sounds obvious, but I don't know that it always is. There are some projects where we struggle for a voice and it doesn't hit us until like the end of SD, maybe even the beginning of DD where it all sort of gels. I think those are rare, but I think it happens. It depends on all the other variables that we're not in control of, right? We're just the lighting designer. I think we bring everything together, the architecture, the interiors, all of those things. You're hurting cats in a way. You've got all the different ideas and opinions, and oftentimes they're not the same. The architect and the interior designer could be coming from different places, and they each want different things, and you're in the middle. So you're doing that counseling. You're trying to bring everybody together and try and figure out how we can make everyone's work look the best. It's not about us. It's not about the lighting guys and gals that are on the project. It's really about trying to bring this vision together. And when you say this vision, this vision is the one collective design that will be seen at the end of a project by somebody who maybe wasn't even necessarily that involved in the details of the design process throughout. You mentioned something interesting that you have to take one vision and another from two different design trades and use lighting to bring it together. Talk to me a little bit more about in your 26 years of experience, what it's been like to have to work through that and what you've learned and how that can play to your advantage at the end of the day. Like any relationship, communication is the key. And we communicate with words, we communicate with drawings and renderings and images. And then the other part of the communication is, I hate to say selling an idea, but you have to sell an idea. We don't sell anything, we sell ideas. It's making sure that everyone gets on the same page 
agrees with that idea, those concepts, and then bringing that home. It's not always easy. It's always nice to look back at the project and look at it and say, oh, that was a slam dunk. It looks amazing. We brought everything together, right? And that's all those things we're talking about, bringing the architect's ideas, the interior designer's ideas, whoever else's ideas are involved in the project, art consultant, whomever. And now we have this vision. And the client, of course, right? The client's got ideas that may or may not be 100% supported by all those people. So you have to take all of those things and then put them in the like snowball thing and shake it up and hope that all the snow lands in the right place, you know? And lighting is that big unifier. I do think the negotiations can be difficult. I probably had that on my mind because we have one of those happening right now. When you say negotiations, what do you mean by that? It's the selling of the ideas. You're trying to sell a set of ideas to two different people who want two different things. You're trying to find that middle ground that brings them together. You're negotiating on behalf of the project as a whole to these amazingly talented architects and interior designers to come together. Lighting design, I think we often think about it as just lighting design. We're just doing the lighting, but we really are in that, I describe it as the cake batter. We're in that mix. We're trying to make all these things work together. You can't make bread without flour, as an example. All those components have to go together and gel just a certain way to get the outcome of that tasty bread. So we're negotiating those percentages and interests of all those things to get to a place. So you may not know it, but that bit of the design is neither architect nor interior designer, but we helped them get to that place where it became whatever it is. As a lighting consultant, like you said, you have to negotiate. You have to bring things together. You really have to be able to step away from the tiny, finite details of a project and see how it will come together. Arguably, that responsibility falls into your lap because what you're doing is placing light in the space. You're not placing light fixtures, you're placing light in the space. Talk to me a little bit about, as you zoom towards that end result, what it's like to place light in the space with lights on plans. It all comes from that intention, right? So you have to set out to have an end result and you have to be able to visualize it. Paul Gregory once said to me, that our job is no longer just lighting consultants, right? We have to be able to visualize the entire project, take all the various disciplines and sort of put it together in your mind's eye to see what all these things are together because otherwise they might just be a separate set of drawings. This is maybe before renderings were as common as they are today. And so you had to do all of that manually, as it were, to then determine what that visual outcome wants to be. Not just the outcome of their stuff, because there's that, there's also then how do you treat all that with lighting? So you have to get to a place. You have to look at a lot of drawings and a lot of things that just take time to get there and then have that intention. Then that intention comes with concepts. Those concepts get depicted on those plans with lines and dots. After you've explored them all in plan, section, elevation, perspective, sometimes it just depends on what the end result wants to be. And the end result is something that has to be well thought through and refined. You mentioned earlier in the conversation that placeholders are a bad thing, and placeholders can often result as a way of not having intent and having to continuously go back to the well. If the intent isn't quite there, why is it important to stop and figure it out right then and there in fear that if you don't, that placeholder may end up going a bit too far? Well, I think in our world, because we're lighting consultants, which means we, we work on a project for a week or two. 
it gets sent out for review, comes back a month later, next advancement of milestones and development, and then it goes away and comes back. And so in that time, if you're not truly aware of what your placeholders were, you may forget about them in some way, or you're reviewing it and not realizing it was a placeholder because it's a pretty good placeholder. It may not be like perfect. And so they're just trying to, trying to be mindful of those things. It used to be we just call out a fixture as TBD. You can't necessarily make a TBD detail if someone's expecting a detail from you. I mean, we do write pending on things that aren't finally confirmed or coordinated. But again, the more you know before you get in the car, the better the drive is going to be. We didn't always have Waze or Google Maps back in the day. So you had to find it yourself. Now we're trying to start with the Waze and Google Maps as we go because projects are faster and expectations are higher. <laughs> you don't necessarily get in the car and, and go nowhere. You certainly don't want to get into a project and be blindsided. And intent is always important. Kind of like when you're surfing. You're only going to get up on the waves that you know are the good waves. That are Hopefully. Gonna, no, you're going to give it your best shot. You're going to try and find the ones that are going to give you the opportunity to almost ride the natural beauty of Mother Nature pushing you along. Do you have any final thoughts for us in terms of being pushed along through a natural process of design? It's interesting. I kind of wish there was a design wave, that sort of wind behind you that pushes you through the process that helps you constantly move forward and advance. It's just something that takes time, whether that's time to develop something or time to develop your career. Lighting's a funny thing. It's not an instant gratification thing. It's not like looking at materials. It really does take an understanding of all the materials, all the architecture, all the space, all the volume, and how light works within all those things. There's a lot more patience required in our world. It's patience and it's time, but when you trust the time that it takes to create that intent to go through the process, if anybody hasn't been, they can go to your website and check out your portfolio. It speaks for itself. It ends up with some incredible projects with some incredibly well done spaces. Sean, thanks so much for catching up with us. This has been a great conversation. If anybody wants to chat lights, chat surfing, what's the best way they can get a hold of you? Oh, I guess our website is a good place to start, or Instagram, or email, or all those sorts of things. You can find Sean on the internet. If you don't know where the internet is, well, I'm not sure how you found this podcast either. Sean, thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Sam. See ya. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, if you enjoyed this podcast, do me a quick favor and go back to whatever platform you listen to this on and click like or subscribe. It's the best way to make sure that you never miss another episode of The Light Pod, where we interview people who are all things lighting, think it's cool, and have a conversation or a story to share. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.